Book 8, Part 2 of History of the Kings of Britain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Kings of Britain by Geoffrey of Monmouth. Translated by Aaron Thompson and J. A. Giles. Chapter 14. Pacentius, assisted by the King of Ireland, again invades Britain. Aurelius dies by the treachery of Aopa as Saxon. Pacentius, after this flight, durst not return to Germany, but shifting his sails, went over to Gilomanius in Ireland, by whom he was well received and when he had given him an account of his misfortune, Gilomanius, in pity to him, promised him his assistance, and at the same time vented his complaint of the injuries done him by Uther, the brother of Aurelius, when he came for the giant's dance. At last, entering into confederacy together, they made ready their fleet, in which they embarked, and arrived at the city of Minavia. This news caused Uthpendragon to levy his forces and march into Cambria to fight them. For his brother Aurelius then lay sick at Winchester and was not able to go himself. When Pacentius, Illimanius, and the Saxons heard of it, they highly rejoiced, flattering themselves that his sickness would facilitate to them the conquest of Britain. While this occurrence was the subject of the people's discourse, one of the Saxons, named Aopa, came to Pacentius and said, What reward will you give the man that shall kill Aurelius Ambrosius for you? To whom Pacentius answered, Oh, that I could find a man of such resolution. I would give him a thousand pounds of silver and my friendship for life. And if by good fortune I can but gain the crown, I promise upon oath to make him a centurion. To this Aopa replied, I have learnt the British language and know the manners of the people, and have skill in physic. If, therefore, you will perform this promise, I will pretend to be a Christian and a Briton, and when, as a physician, I shall be admitted into the king's presence, I will make him a potion that will dispatch him. And to gain the readier access to him, I will put on the appearance of a devout and learned monk. Upon the offer, Pacentius entered into covenant with him, and confirmed what he had promised with an oath. Aopa, therefore, shaved his beard and head, and in the habit of a monk hastened to Winchester, loaded with vessels full of medical preparations. 
as soon as he arrived there, he offered his service to those that attended about the king, and was graciously received by them, for to them nobody was now more acceptable than a physician. Being introduced into the king's presence, he promised to restore him to his health, if he would but take his potions, upon which he had his orders forthwith to prepare one of them, into which, when he had secretly conveyed a poisonous mixture, he gave it to the king. As soon as Aurelius had drunk it up, the wicked Ambron ordered him presently to cover himself close up and fall asleep, that the detestable poison might the better operate. The king readily obeyed his prescriptions, and in hopes of his speedy recovery fell asleep. But the poison quickly diffused itself through all the pores and veins of his body, so that the sleep ended in death. In the meantime, the wicked traitor, having cunningly withdrawn himself first from one and then from another, was no longer to be found in the court. During these transactions at Winchester, there appeared a star of wonderful magnitude and brightness, darting forth a ray, at the end of which was a globe of fire in the form of a dragon, out of whose mouth issued forth two rays, one of which seemed to stretch out itself beyond the extent of Gaul, the other towards the Irish Sea, and ended in seven lesser rays. Chapter 15 A Comet Pre-Signifies the Reign of Uther At the appearance of this star, a general fear and amazement seized the people, and even Uther, the king's brother, who was then upon his march with his army into Cambria, being not a little terrified at it, was very curious to know of the learned men what it portended. Among others, he ordered Merlin to be called, who also attended in this expedition to give his advice in the management of the war, and who, being now presented before him, was commanded to discover to him the signification of the star. At this, he burst out into tears, and with a loud voice cried out, O oh, irreparable loss! O oh, distressed people of Britain! Alas, the illustrious prince is departed! The renowned king of the Britons, Aurelius Ambrosius, is dead! Whose death will prove fatal to us all, unless God be our helper! Make haste, therefore, most noble Uther! Make haste to engage the enemy. The victory will be yours, and you shall be king of all Britain. For the star and the fiery dragon under it signifies yourself, and the ray extending towards the Gallic coast portends that you will have a most potent son, to whose power all those kingdoms shall be subject over which the ray reaches. But the other ray signifies a daughter, whose sons and grandsons shall successively enjoy the kingdom of Britain. 
Chapter 16 Pacentius and Gilomanius are killed in battle. Uther, though he doubted the truth of what Merlin had declared, pursued his march against the enemy, for he was now come within half a day's march of Menavia. When Gilomanius, Pacentius, and the Saxons were informed of his approach, they went out to give him battle. As soon as they were come within sight of each other, both armies began to form themselves into several bodies, and then advanced to a close attack, in which both sides suffered a loss of men, as usually happens in such engagements. At last, towards the close of day, the advantage was on Uther's side, and the death of Gilomanius and Pacentius made a way for complete victory, so that the barbarians, being put to flight, hastened to their ships, but were slain by their pursuers. Thus, by the favour of Christ, the general had triumphant success, and then, with all possible expedition, after so great a fatigue, returned back to Winchester, for he had now been informed, by messengers that arrived, of the king's sad fate, and of his burial by the bishops of the country, near the convent of Ambrius, within the giant's dance, which in his lifetime he had commanded to be made. For upon hearing the news of his death, the bishops, abbots, and all the clergy of that province had met together at Winchester to solemnise his funeral. And because in his lifetime he had given orders for his being buried in the sepulchre which he had prepared, they therefore carried his corpse thither and performed his exequies with royal magnificence. Chapter 17 Uther Pendragon is made King of Britain. But Uther, his brother, having assembled the clergy of the kingdom, took the crown, and by universal consent was advanced to the kingdom. And remembering the explanation which Merlin had made of the star above mentioned, he commanded two dragons to be made of gold, in likeness of the dragon which he had seen at the ray of the star. As soon as they were finished, which was done with wonderful nicety of workmanship, he made a present of one to the Cathedral Church of Winchester, but reserved the other for himself, to be carried along with him to his wars. From this time, therefore, he was called Uther, Pendragon, which in the British tongue signifies the dragon's head. The occasion of this appellation being Merlin's prediction from the appearance of a dragon that he should be king. Chapter 18 Octa and Aosa are taken in battle. In the meantime, Octa, the son of Hengist, and his kinsman Aosa, seeing that they were no longer bound by the treaty which they had made with Aurelius Ambrosius, began to raise disturbances against the king and infest his countries. For they were now joining with the Saxons, whom Pacentius had brought over 
and sending messengers into Germany for the rest. Being therefore attended with a vast army, he invaded the northern provinces and in an outrageous manner destroyed all the cities and fortified places, from Albania to York. At last, as he was beginning the siege of that city, Uther Pendragon came upon him with the whole power of the kingdom and gave him battle. The Saxons behaved with great gallantry, and having sustained the assaults of the Britons, forced them to fly, and upon this advantage pursued them with slaughter to the mountain Daemon, which was as long as they could do it with daylight. The mountain was high, and had a hazelwood upon the top of it, and about the middle broken and cavernous rocks, which were a harbour to wild beasts. The Britons made up to it, and stayed there all night among the rocks and hazel bushes. But as it began to draw towards day, Uther commanded the consuls and princes to be called together, that he might consult with them in what manner to assault the enemy. Whereupon they forthwith appeared before the king, who commanded them to give their advice. And Gorlois, Duke of Cornwall, had orders to deliver his opinion first, out of regard to his years and great deliverance. "'There is no occasion,' said he, "'for ceremonies or speeches, while we see that it is still night. "'But there is for boldness and courage, "'if you desire any longer enjoyment of your life and liberty. "'The pagans are very numerous and eager to fight, "'and we much inferior to them in number.' so that if we stay till daybreak, we cannot, in my opinion, attack them to advantage. Come on, therefore, while we have the favour of night, and let us go down in a close body, and surprise them in their camp with a sudden assault. There can be no doubt of success, if with one consent we fall upon them bodily while they think themselves secure and have no expectation of our coming in such a manner. The king, and all that were present, were pleased with his advice, and pursued it. For as soon as they were armed, and placed in their ranks, they made towards the enemy's camp, designing a general assault. But upon approaching to it, they were discovered by the watch, who with sound of trumpet awakened their companions the enemies being hereupon put into confusion and astonishment, part of them hastened towards the sea, and part ran up and down, whithersoever their fear or precipitation drove them. The Britons, finding their coming discovered, hastened their march, and keeping still close together in their ranks, assailed the camp, into which, when they had found an entrance, they ran with their drawn swords upon the enemy, who in this sudden surprise made a faint defence against their vigorous and regular attack. And pursuing this blow with great eagerness, they destroyed some thousands of the pagans, took Octa and Aosa prisoners, and entirely dispersed the Saxons. Chapter 19 Uther, falling in love with Igerna, enjoys her, 
by the assistance of Merlin's magical operations. After this victory, Uther repaired to the city of Arklad, where he settled the affairs of that province and restored peace everywhere. He also made a progress round all the countries of the Scots and tamed the fierceness of that rebellious people by such a strict administration of justice as none of his predecessors had exercised before, so that in his time offenders were everywhere under great terror, since they were sure of being punished without mercy. At last, when he had established peace in the northern provinces, he went to London and commanded Octa and Aosa to be kept in prison there. The Easter following, he ordered all the nobility of the kingdom to meet him at that city, in order to celebrate that great festival, in honour of which he designed to wear his crown. The summons was everywhere obeyed, and there was a great concourse from all cities to celebrate the day. So the king observed the festival with great solemnity, as he had designed, and very joyfully entertained his nobility, of whom there was a very great muster, with their wives and daughters, suitably to the magnificence of the banquet prepared for them. And having been received with joy by the king, they also expressed the same in their deportment before him. Among the rest was present Gorlois, king of Cornwall, with his wife Egerna, the greatest beauty in all Britain. No sooner had the king cast his eyes upon her among the rest of the ladies than he fell passionately in love with her, and little regarding the rest made her the subject of all his thoughts. She was the only lady that he continually served with fresh dishes, and to whom he sent golden cups by his confidence. On her he bestowed all his smiles, and to her addressed all his discourse. The husband, discovering this, fell into a great rage, and retired from the court without taking leave. Nor was there anybody that could stop him, while he was under fear of losing the chief object of his delight. Uther, therefore, in great wrath, commanded him to return back to court, to make satisfaction for this affront. But Gorlois refused to obey, upon which the king was highly incensed, and swore he would destroy his country, if he did not speedily compound for his offence. Accordingly, without delay, while their anger was hot against each other, the king got together a great army, and marched into Cornwall, the cities and towns whereof he set on fire. But Gorlois durst not engage with him, on account of the inferiority of his numbers, and thought it a wiser course to fortify his towns, till he could get succour from Ireland. And as he was more under concern for his wife than himself, he put her into the town of Tintagel, upon the seashore, which he looked upon as a place of great safety. But he himself entered the castle of Dimmerlock, to prevent their being both at once involved in the same danger, if any should happen. The king, informed of this, went to the town where Gorlois was, 
which he besieged, and shut up all the avenues to it. A whole week was now past, when, retaining in mind his love to Agarna, he said to one of his confidants, named Ulfin de Ricaradoc, My passion for Agarna is such that I can neither have ease of mind nor ease of body till I obtain her. And if you cannot assist me with your advice how to accomplish my desire, the inward torments I endure will kill me. Who can advise you in this matter, said Ulfin, when no force will enable us to have access to her in the town of Tintagel? For it is situated upon the sea, and on every side surrounded by it, and there is but one entrance into it, and that through a straight rock, which three men shall be able to defend against the whole power of the kingdom. Notwithstanding, if the prophet Merlin would in earnest set about this attempt, I am of opinion you might with his advice obtain your wishes. The king readily believed what he was so well inclined to, and ordered Merlin, who was also come to the siege, to be called. Merlin, therefore, being introduced into the king's presence, was commanded to give his advice how the king might accomplish his desire with respect to Agarna. And he, finding the great anguish of the king, was moved by such excessive love, and said, To accomplish your desire, you must make use of such arts as have not been heard of in your time. I know how, by the force of my medicines, to give you the exact likeness of Gaulois, so that in all respects you shall seem to be no other than himself. If you will therefore obey my prescriptions, I will metamorphize you into the true semblance of Gaulois, and Ulfin into Jordan of Tintagel, his familiar friend. And I myself, being transformed into another shape, will make the third in the adventure. And in this disguise, you may go safely into the town where Ergerina is, and have admittance to her. The king complied with the proposal, and acted with great caution in this affair, and when he had committed the care of the siege to his intimate friends, underwent the medical applications of Merlin, by whom he was transformed into the likeness of Gorlois. As Ulfin also into Jordan, and Merlin himself into Brickle, so that nobody could see any remains now of their former likeness. They then set forward on their way to Tintagel, at which they arrived in the evening twilight, and forthwith signified to the porter that the consul was come upon which the gates were opened, and the men let in. For what room could there be for suspicion, when Gorlois himself seemed to be there present? The king, therefore, stayed that night with Agarina, and had the full enjoyment of her, for she was deceived with the false disguise which he had put on, and the artful and amorous discourses wherewith he entertained her. He told her, that he had left his own place besieged, 
purely to provide for the safety of her dear self and the town she was in, so that believing all that he said, she refused him nothing which he desired. The same night, therefore, she conceived of the most renowned Arthur, whose heroic and wonderful actions have justly rendered his name famous to posterity. Chapter 20 Gorlois being killed, Uther marries Agerina. In the meantime, as soon as the king's absence was discovered at the siege, his army unadvisedly made an assault upon the walls and provoked the besieged count to a battle, who himself also, acting as inconsiderately as they, sallied forth with his men, thinking with such a small handful to oppose a powerful army, but happened to be killed in the very first brunt of the fight, and had all his men routed. The town also was taken, but all the riches of it were not shared equally among the besiegers, but everyone greedily took what he could get, according as fortune or his own strength favoured him. After this bold attempt came messengers to Igerna, with news both of the duke's death and of the event of the siege. But when they saw the king, in the likeness of the consul, sitting close by her, they were struck with shame and astonishment at his safe arrival there, whom they had left dead at the siege, for they were wholly ignorant of the miracles which Merlin had wrought with his medicines. The king therefore smiled at the news, and embracing the countess said to her, Your own eyes may convince you that I am not dead, but alive. But notwithstanding, the destruction of the town and the slaughter of my men is what very much grieves me, so that there is reason to fear the king's coming upon us and taking us in this place, to prevent which I will go out to meet him and make my peace with him for fear of a worse disaster. Accordingly, as soon as he was out of the town, he went to his army, and having put off the disguise of Gorlois, was now Uther Pendragon again. When he had had a full relation made to him of how matters had succeeded, he was sorry for the death of Gorlois, but rejoiced that Igerino was now at liberty to marry again. Then he returned to the town of Tintagel, which he took, and in it, what he impatiently wished for, Igerino herself. After this, they continued to live together with much affection for each other, and had a son and daughter, whose names were Arthur and Anne. Chapter 21 Octa and Aosa renew the war. Lot, a consul, marries the king's daughter. In process of time, the king was taken ill of a lingering distemper, and meanwhile the keepers of the prison wherein Octa and Aosa, as we related before, led a weary life, had fled over with them into Germany, and occasioned great fear over the kingdom. 
for there was a report of their great levies in Germany, and the vast fleet which they had prepared for their return to destroy the island, which the event verified. For they returned in a great fleet, and with a prodigious number of men, and invaded the parts of Albania, where they destroyed both cities and inhabitants, with fire and sword. Wherefore, in order to repulse the enemies, the command of the British army was committed to Lot of Londonesia, who was a consul and a most valiant knight, and grown up to maturity both of years and wisdom. Out of respect to his eminent merits, the king had given him his daughter Anne, and entrusted him with the care of the kingdom during his illness. In his expedition against the enemies, he had various success, being often repulsed by them, and forced to retreat to the cities. But he often routed and dispersed them, and compelled them to flee sometimes into the woods, sometimes to their ships. So that in a war attended with so many turns of fortune, it was hard to know which side had the better. The greatest injury to the Britons was their own pride, in disdaining to obey the consul's commands, for which reason all their efforts against the enemy were less rigorous and successful. Chapter 22 Uther, being ill, is carried in a horse litter against the enemy. The island, being by this conduct now almost laid waste, the king, having information of the matter, fell into a greater rage than his weakness could bear, and commanded all his nobility to come before him, that he might reprove them severely for their pride and cowardice. As soon as they were all entered into his presence, he sharply rebuked them in menacing language, and swore he himself would lead them against the enemy. For this purpose he ordered a horse litter to be made, in which he designed to be carried, for his infirmity would not suffer him to use any other sort of vehicle, and he charged them all to be ready to march against the enemy on the first opportunity. So, without delay, the horse litter and all his attendants were got ready, and the day arrived which had been appointed for their march. Chapter 23 Octa and Aosa, with a great number of their men, are killed. The king, therefore, being put into his vehicle, they marched directly to Verulam, where the Saxons were grievously oppressing the people. When Octa and Aosa had intelligence that the Britons were come, and that the king was brought in a horse litter, they disdained to fight with him, saying it would be a shame for such brave men to fight with one that was half dead. For which reason they retired into the city, and, as it were in contempt of any danger from the enemy, left their gates wide open. But Uther, upon information of this, instantly commanded his men to lay siege to the city and assault the walls on all sides, which orders they strictly executed 
and were just entering the breaches which they had made in the walls, and ready to begin a general assault, when the Saxons, seeing the advantages which the Britons had gained, and being forced to abate somewhat of their haughty pride, condescended so far as to put themselves into a posture of defence. They therefore mounted the walls, from whence they poured down showers of arrows, and repulsed the Britons. On both sides the contest continued, till night released them from the fatigue of their arms, which was what many of the Britons desired, though the greater part of them were for having the matter quickly decided with the enemy. The Saxons, on the other hand, finding how prejudicial their own pride had been to them, and that the advantage was on the side of the Britons, resolved to make a salient break of day and try their fortune with the enemy in the open field, which accordingly was done. For no sooner was it daylight than they marched out with this design, all in their proper ranks. The Britons, seeing them, divided their men into several bodies, and advancing towards them, began the attack first, their part being to assault, while the others were only upon the defensive. However, much blood was shed on both sides, and the greatest part of the day spent in the fight, when at last, Octor and Iosa being killed, the Saxons turned their backs and left the Britons a complete victory. The king at this was in such an ecstasy of joy that whereas before he could hardly raise himself up without the help of others, he now without any difficulty sat upright in his horse litter of himself as if he was on a sudden restored to health and said with a laughing and merry countenance, Those Ambrons called me the half-dead king because my sickness obliged me to lie in a horse litter and indeed so I was. Yet victory to me half-dead is better than to be safe and sound and vanquished. For to die with honour is preferable to living with disgrace. Chapter 24 Uther, upon drinking spring water that was treacherously poisoned by the Saxons, dies. The Saxons, notwithstanding this defeat, persisted still in their malice, and entering the northern provinces, without respite infested the people there. Uther's purpose was to have pursued them, but his princes dissuaded him from it, because his illness had increased since the victory. This gave new courage to the enemy, who left nothing unattempted to make conquest of the kingdom. And now they have recourse to their former treacherous practices, and contrive how to compass the king's death by secret villainy. And because they could have no access to him otherwise, they resolved to take him off by poison, in which they succeeded. For while he was lying ill at Verulam, they sent away some spies in a poor habit to learn the state of the court. And when they had thoroughly informed themselves of the posture of affairs, they found out an expedient by which they might best accomplish their villainy, for there was near the court a spring of very clear water, which the king used to drink of when his distemper had made all other liquors nauseous to him. 
this the detestable conspirators made use of to destroy him by so poisoning the whole mass of water which sprung up that the next time the king drank of it he was seized with sudden death as were also a hundred other persons after him till the villainy was discovered and a heap of earth thrown over the well as soon as the king's death was divulged the bishops and clergy of the kingdom assembled and carried his body off to the convent of Ambrius, where they buried it with regal solemnity, close by Aurelius Ambrosius, within the giant's dance. End of Book 8, Part 2